In the Sutton household, we celebrate birthdays and special occasions in big ways. There's nothing worse than like a lame celebration, right? For example, we don't just have birthdays, but we have what is often called birthday week. Any, any of you guys have that person in your family who's it's birthday week or perhaps birthday month? That person might take some liberties like perhaps someone else should do the dishes this week since it's my birthday week. You know, it's, it's a big thing. And so what, what that means for us is that there's this anticipation built into the week leading up to the actual birthday celebration. So there's, we're anticipating the anticipated and we're celebrating a little early because the thing is such a good thing. And what we're doing is we're actively anticipating something that we've already deemed is really important that's still in the future. And that's what we're doing during Advent as a church. Year after year, churches gather to celebrate Advent. We spend the better part of a month anticipating and celebrating We celebrate the first Advent, and we anticipate the second Advent. Last week, Pastor Kai talked about the difference between the two. That first Advent is what we might call the already, and the second Advent is the not yet. So when we gather, we have this rhythm as a church where we are celebrating that Christ has come and that he has lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, that he conquered death, that he ascended into heaven, that we have the Holy Spirit, and now we are anticipating that he is coming back. And that is Advent, and it's beautiful. And this rhythm of life focuses our hearts and our minds on Jesus in a way that makes us ready for his final return. It makes us ready for him to come back. We want to be found ready and worshiping and serving the way that he would have. A similar occasion is found in our text today with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They were part of the the group of human beings that were on earth when Jesus came to earth and they walked with him and they served with him. And in in that way, they've been following Jesus with great intentionality. And for them, this was just Advent. This was Emmanuel. This was Christ with us for them. They didn't have the thought that we have this morning of the first Advent and the second Advent. They just, Jesus had been anticipated since the garden. It said that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and free us from sin and death and destruction. So since the garden, Christ had been anticipated, and then they're walking with them. This is a crazy, crazy scenario that, that there are actual people that really walked with Jesus, and two of those people were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So what they're anticipating in this moment is Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. They're going into Jerusalem. So what they're seeing is Jesus is about to fulfill prophecy, go into Jerusalem, and establish his his, his throne, his earthly rule, his kingdom forever. And as they were considering, this is what Jesus is about to do, they began to consider and anticipate the opportunities that that might afford to them. They got a little selfish. What role they might play in Jesus' reigning and ruling, how they might be honored in his earthly kingship. So before we dig into the text, I want to ask you guys a question, and it's kind of odd. If Jesus was standing right here, right with us today, in the flesh, and he said to you, what do you want me to do for you? What would you, what would you say? Don't say it out loud, it'll make it weird for everybody. But like, if, if Jesus is here, what do you want me to do for you? Can you wrap your head around that? What's the first thing that comes to mind? The first request that might pop into your head? As crazy as that sounds, that actually happened to James and John in our text this morning. We just read it, but it's one of those texts you can read and be like, yeah, 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 I heard that. But like, we're going to slow down and we're going to read and we're going to dig into it because what happens is pretty 
uh, pretty remarkable. And the, the answer that they have to that question, what do you want me to do for you, is very revealing. So look at verses 35 through 41 in Mark 10. Mark 10. It helps when the pastor puts his bookmark in the right place. Hold on, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Joe. Okay, good, good, good. Mark 10, verses 35 through 45. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask for you, of you. So let's take that in for a minute. These guys are walking with Jesus, they're serving with Jesus, and they're, they're like, you know what? Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Does that feel presumptuous? Like a little bit like, like, like that's a little crazy of a question. We, were, we had a bunch of kiddos over at our house, and I did a magic trick. It's not real magic, it's just an illusion, don't worry. But I made a coin disappear. I made the coin disappear, blew their minds. And one of the kids goes, can you make me float? <laughs> like it was kind of like, Kind of presumptuous, like that was a really big jump. That's what I feel like when we're sitting here watching James and John walk with Jesus, serve with Jesus, in the middle of serving, they said, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. It's almost like this moment of like, let's see if we can get him to say yes, and maybe he doesn't know what's going on. So it's a crazy moment, like, we want you to do whatever we ask of you, Jesus. What's crazier is his response. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? How do you think James and John felt in that moment? Like, oh, he said yes. Like, what's, what are we going to say? And, but they have an answer. What do you want me to do for you? Crazy moment. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. We want to be seated in a place of honor. We want to be high and lifted up. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And at that moment, they might have thought, you know what? He makes a good point. Maybe we can't be, be drinking the cup that he drinks. And maybe we can't do that. But they respond, we are able. These guys are on a roll. They're feeling very good about themselves. Very high estimation of what they can accomplish in their awesomeness. We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. This is a crazy moment with Jesus, is it not? And these guys are presuming so many things, and it's easy to look at them and be like, what a bunch of just idiots. Like, what's wrong with these guys? But I, I think it fits, it's fitting for us and helpful for us to take a minute to realize we're, we're probably more like them than we are different. We can probably relate to some of the feelings that they have had, if we're honest. And so as, as we dig into this, like I might think, well, maybe there's just a blip on the radar and unfortunately someone wrote it down, right? <laughs> like maybe these guys were mostly just did great and this is like a blip on the radar. Someone wrote it down and now human history forevermore knows that James and John said, Jesus, we want you to do what we tell you to do. But if you just look at the previous chapter <laughs> in Mark 9, 33 through 35, it says this, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, Jesus, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? The hard thing about traveling with someone who's all-knowing is when they ask a question like that, they probably already know the answer, but what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
They're with Jesus. They're walking with Jesus. They're watching Jesus serve, and they're arguing about who is the greatest. And Jesus knew it, and he asked them about it, and they don't, they don't want to say anything, but that's what was happening. And then he sat down, and he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So they're walking with Jesus, watching him serve. They've heard him say, if anyone would be first, he must be last. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. And they decide they're going to ask Jesus to make them famous, effectively. That's their, that's their moment. You know what? We heard what he said. This is, this is our moment. I want to be famous. In light of having just been told that the first shall be last, last shall be first, James and John seem to double down and say, you know what? It seems about time the sons of Zebedee get some respect around here. And they demand a better seat. They are celebrating Advent by seeking their own self-interest. And the other disciples are indignant, not because they asked a question that was out of line, but they were more asking the question. Their indignance was more like, well, what makes you think that maybe one of us shouldn't be sitting at the left and the right? So these two guys, in their arrogance, have brought in the other ten, and everybody's sitting there kind of like worrying about where they're sitting while they're with Jesus. I wish that I could stand here today and tell you that it's not possible to walk closely with Jesus and still be full of pride and selfishness, but apparently it is possible. I wish I could tell you that there's no possible way that the Christmas season could be turned into a charade of professing Christians seeking their own self-interest, but apparently it is possible. But what's interesting is Jesus' response. Jesus did not condemn their desire to be great. That's a surprising moment for me. So I'm reading through this. Like they just asked some pretty big stuff. It was pretty presumptuous, pretty arrogant, pretty selfish, pretty prideful. Jesus does not condemn their desire to be great. You may have thought that Jesus would have said, being great is not your goal. Put greatness out of your mind. Only God is great, but he doesn't. In fact, throughout scripture, God makes some men's names great. That was part of the Davidic covenant. He said to David, I will make your name great. So Jesus isn't against greatness, and Jesus is not against the pursuit of greatness. But what Jesus does for them is he redefines greatness. Remember, the disciples are wrapped up in pride. Where will I sit when Jesus is sitting on his throne? To put it plainly, they want to be famous. And they're defining greatness as the amount of power you might have or the position that you might keep. It's all about themselves. C.J. Mahaney has written a really wonderful little book on humility. It's called Humility, True Greatness. And uh, I would recommend it to everybody. And if you're sitting there thinking, a little book on humility, I probably don't need that. And you probably do. So <laughs> C.J. Mahaney in his book says, uh, pride takes innumerable forms but has only one end, self-glorification. That's the end of all pride, to make much of me. We could, we could sit here all morning and think about all the ways that we've had pride in our lives, all the ways that that's been manifested in our lives, all the ways we've seen it maybe in our friends, in brothers and sisters in Christ, in our children, in our spouse. We can think of all the different ways that pride takes its forms, but in the end, it's all about self-glorification. So what Jesus does is he lovingly comes in and he gives his disciples a course correction. Jesus is saying, pursue greatness, but define greatness the right way, and he, and, he, and he defines it for us in verses 42 through 44. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, 
You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. He's saying you are going to be different. You are a people that are set apart. That's not the way it's going to be with my kingdom. It says it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Notice he doesn't say if you want to be great, you should really try maybe to just serve a little bit. It's a must. It says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He's speaking to them as a people that belong to him, holy, set apart. And C.J. Mahaney outlines that there's two different definitions that are being worked with here, and he wants to show the definition. And I think it's helpful to look at them. So there's this cultural definition of greatness, and then there's the definition that Jesus gives. And so in the definition of greatness from the culture, I want you to tell me, not out loud again, don't make it weird, but have we progressed you know, from this, this, this culture oh so long ago, have we progressed to a different definition? Because the definition in this culture is individuals motivated by self-interest, self-indulgence, and a false sense of self-sufficiency. Oh yeah, we can drink the cup. Pursuing selfish ambition, for the purpose of self-glorification. There's a lot of self in that definition. Is anyone familiar with like social media or anything like that? Like do you see these patterns in our culture still? Have we grown out of this just, just over time? Absolutely not. Individuals motivated by self-interest, self-indulgence, and a false sense of self-sufficiency pursuing selfish ambition for the purpose of self-glorification. That is greatness defined by culture and Jesus says that is not what my people are called to be. Jesus defines greatness really simply, serving others for the glory of God. Does that excite you? <laughs> serving others for the glory of God. That's greatness. At Crosspoint, that might look like an individual or a couple serving in our nursery with our littlest ones, praying over them for years. And a whole other class comes in, they keep praying over them and loving them. That's a way that they serve those children and serve the parents. Maybe you work in the children's ministry and you teach children because you know how important it is for them to know Jesus and you know how important it is for them to understand the word of God. And just, no one's handing out awards. Like we do that as a church sometimes because it's fun, but no one on a Wednesday night's like, hey, great job again, here's your gold star. Or like it's not, like there's not awards being handed out for this service that is just serving others for the glory of God. Perhaps it looks like people who show up to, to greet at the front door simply because people coming in will be greeted with a smile and they'll know that we're glad they're here. Perhaps it's like a team working on the, the, the Lord's Supper elements. Did you know that they have to refill these plastic chalices every week? I'm kidding, they don't. Um, but they order them. They have to count and know how many people are here, how many people were here, how, how many do we need to order ahead of time, how long do we have we had the one. And there's work that goes into that, but it's just serving others for the glory of God. There's not a whole lot of glory in that. It's like writing thank you cards, or, or more importantly, or also birthday cards. It's like writing birthday cards week after week, year after year, so that people will know that they're thought of and they're loved on their important day. It's like helping people find a seat in here so that they're not distracted and they can get to worship. There are so many ways to serve. And greatness defined by Jesus is serving others for the glory of God. And then he, ex- he explains it even further by saying that Jesus came to serve in case they missed it, which apparently maybe that wasn't having the impact on them that we would think it would have. Jesus came to serve. 
In verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. It would do us all well to go home and turn the TV off and spend the day meditating on that verse. Jesus, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve. The one worthy of all the honor and all the glory and all the service, he came to serve. If you have trouble finding the motivation to serve others, this is a really wonderful passage to meditate on. Just staying within the context of Mark, these disciples were able to observe some pretty incredible things. Walking with Jesus in the flesh, living during that time and watching Jesus serve. Just within the couple chapters before and the couple chapters after, um, these disciples were among the very few to have gotten a firsthand insight into observing Jesus serving sinful humans. Among other things, they watched him heal a boy with an unclean spirit. They watched Jesus serve the father of that boy as the father battled and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. They watched Jesus serve that man. They were in the actual presence of Jesus serving children, correcting them when they're arguing over who's the greatest. He served through teaching. He taught about temptation. He taught about marriage. He taught about money. He taught about resources. He taught about what the rhythm of life looks like for people that are following Jesus Again, gently correcting the disciples in their wrong view of greatness. And right after serving the disciples by correcting the wrong view of greatness, he goes and he, there's Bartimaeus and he heals his blindness. They saw Jesus gently correct them and go to a blind guy and give him sight. They saw that. They walked with him and saw him serving wholeheartedly, eventually all of them ending up in the upper room where Jesus then takes the form of a servant takes a towel, and he washes their feet. He even washes the feet of one who would betray him. He even serves one who would pose as an enemy. As I look at that, I mean, I, they, they sat, they watched a perfect example. Jesus' example of service could not have been improved upon in any way. There wasn't a Tuesday where he was just kind of off and couldn't get it together like us. There was no way that his love could have been improved upon. Like it was lacking a little bit and it could have been, but they never experienced that. They just experienced perfection. They heard his teaching. I have gotten to sit under some amazing professors over the years. Never have I sat under Jesus in the flesh. And so they heard the teaching of Jesus. And as as we look at this, it really is kind of perplexing because you might be like, you guys lived during the time of Jesus. You got to walk with him. You got to see him serve. You got to hear his teaching. You got to hear the words coming out of his mouth. You got to see him pouring it out for other people in a sinless way. What more do you need? Why are you arguing over greatness? What more do you need? Even in the physical presence of Jesus, these men were still enslaved to sin. Think about that. Even in the physical presence of Jesus, these men were still enslaved to sin. They were still in bondage. They were still in need of freedom in that moment. So Jesus further explains that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to die and give his life as a ransom for many. What we see here is that without the death of Jesus, you cannot overcome your sin. Without the death of Jesus, you cannot overcome your sin. 
And we see this ransom. That's a big word, giving his life as a ransom for many. That should make you say, am I the many? Am I one of the many? Have I laid hold of Christ by faith? Is it, it's a free gift. Am I, am I in that many? And the ransom, like when you, if you got a ransom letter right now, you wouldn't be like, oh yeah, someone's in a good spot today. If you received a ransom letter, you'd realize someone needs to be bought back. Someone needs to be redeemed. So the question when we see ransom is, who is getting paid? What is the payment? And then what happens? Who's being redeemed? And the ESV study Bible makes it really clear. The ransom of Christ's life was paid to God the Father who accepted it as a just payment for the sins of many. Some of y'all might have been sitting here thinking the ransom may be paid to the devil or something like that, but no, no, no. You see, the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness oppresses the truth. Only the ransomed life, the life of Christ offered as a ransom is sufficient payment to the Lord. We are conceived in iniquity. We are brought forth in sin because God is perfectly holy. He can't just sweep our sin under the rug. Because God is perfectly holy, he can't just ignore our sin. The wages of sin is death and the price has to be paid. In justification, we find that our debt to God is forgiven. We're bought back. We're deemed righteous. It's not just that Jesus took some of his righteousness and kind of sprinkled it on us so that we'd fix our behavior. It wasn't imparted to us, it was imputed to us, that righteousness. God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Christ. It's counted as ours legally and for real forever. So there's this justification where we're forgiven and we're deemed righteous. There's the sanctification where you're being transformed into the image of Christ for your entire life. So if you, think, you might think about it in these terms. You were condemned. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Then you're ransomed. And there's forgiveness And then there's this actual possibility of progressing in righteousness. Donald English says, At the source of all Christian service in the world is the crucified and risen Lord who died to liberate us into such service. We were liberated from death and destruction. We're liberated into service. This is, like, I can't preach in a way that corrects all of our behaviors and makes us better at serving. It is the work of Jesus that does that. So is that all that we know about James and John? Does it end there? A couple guys looking not so awesome because they're demanding their own, their own fame and their own glory. I'm thankful that we have the canon of Scripture and we can know what happened to both of these men. Our question is, how did Christ's death, his life given as a ransom, impact James and John? And we'll start with James. They kind of work as bookends. It says in Acts 12, 1 through 3, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw it, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. James was the first of the apostles to be martyred. Is that powerful? Think about that. I think the question is, what happened to take James from I want to be famous to serving others in Christ to the point where he gave his life? What happened? And the ransom was paid. That's what happened. The answer to that question is that the ransom was paid. 
They were delivered from sin. They were delivered from being enslaved to sin. The ransom was paid. So James ended up being the first apostle to be martyred because he served to the end because he understood it and he was ransomed. John in 1 John 3.16 says this, by this we know love. John wrote this. The guy who was asking about having a better seat. By this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us. Ransom. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John was the last to die of the apostles. After suffering persecution and being banished to the island of Patmos. So what happened to take John from I want to be lifted up to we ought to lay down our lives? And the answer is that the ransom was paid. The ransom frees us from the bondage to sin self and death. You cannot free yourself. And when you are bought back from that and bought out of that, you now belong to someone else. Once ransomed, you can be transformed and the fight against sin is no longer futile and hopeless. For ransomed people, you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. There might be a day where you're thinking, I can't do it, but then you remember that you're ransomed and you can. And you continue to lean forward and you continue to trust the Lord. James and John embraced the reality of who they belonged to and it affected how they would serve and ultimately give their lives. What we find in this is that you don't just need an example to follow, you need a savior to ransom you. That's what we celebrate at Advent. We celebrate a savior who has ransomed us. You don't just need an example to follow. It's not just about changing behavior. If you're thinking about your kiddos and you're thinking, how can I get them to act right? Well, it's not just about modifying their behavior. It's about Jesus. It's about them understanding and growing in Jesus, laying hold of Christ by faith, and it's a gift. You need a Savior to ransom you. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We'll be known by our love for one another. When people visit our, our church in particular, they should see something different that, that the people are serving, that, that the, the main oomph, the main emphasis of our lives is serving others for the glory of God. James and John experience this, and then John becomes the one to give us maybe one of the most detailed insights into what we're anticipating in Advent. While on the island of Patmos, he has a vision from the Lord and it says this in Revelation 5 and it's a great preparation for our supper this morning. John, who was arguing about where he would sit when Jesus took the throne, who who thought it was about something he could get out of the deal, who struggled with pride and arrogance and self-glorification, is in a spot where he gets this from the Lord in Revelation 5 and it prepares us for our supper this morning. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This scroll is understood to be believed as God's will for mankind, to put it plainly. So it's what happens to man. I want to know what God's will is, and there's an eagerness to know what's on this scroll. And John can sense it even as he's watching this play out. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll 
or look into it. No one who said, yeah, I can drink that cup. I can be baptized in that bath. Yeah, I can accomplish that. Even the most arrogant who thought they were absolutely sure they could do it, no one could be found. Not one. And John reflects back into what he's experiencing and he says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So John's weeping in this moment. He's saying, no one can do it. No one's worthy. And one of the elders said to me, to John, weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In the margin of my Bible, I just wrote like a boss. Just boom, give me the scroll. I can open it. That's Jesus. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, given as a ransom. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth, And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Your prayers show up in this moment. And they sang a new song, an Advent song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to God and you shall reign on the earth in this massive massive moment the ransom is celebrated I want you to take your plastic chalice your cup they sang a new song Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We take the supper as a ransomed people. That is our motivation and the the actual way in which we can become people who serve others for the glory of God. This is Advent. We are anticipating the one who ransomed us, the one to whom we belong and the one who is coming back for us. Take and eat. Take a drink. Lord, during this Advent season, we pray that you would focus our hearts and our minds to consider in a more deep and a more profound and more robust way that we were ransomed, that we are not our own, that we, we're not called to live lives of glorifying ourselves, but we entrust ourselves to you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for coming not to be served, but to serve. Help us to serve others for your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name.